So starting however you want to call it at the end of 5 or at the beginning of 6, the Noah story is going to last all the way essentially through chapter 9. And then chapter 10 and 11 you've got two things related to the nations. And if we get there today, we'll really see how they're kind of backwards and that the chapter 10 kind of assumes the events of chapter 11. And then at the end there of chapter 11 is Shem's descendants, Terah's descendants. And what's the point of getting to Terah's descendants? It's to transition into Abraham because Abraham is uh, in essentially that line. Okay, so beginning then at Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Major points, right? Major points, obviously, is God is creator, right? Now, if you're thinking of an Israelite, um, this is specifically in distinction from another God, right? Um, Modern world, we're more arguing, generally speaking, with people who would say that somehow by chance, creation or things existed. Uh, But for for the ancient Jew, that's not really what they would have been fighting with. They would have been arguing with people in Babylon and Canaan and going, no, it's not your God that created the world. It is our God that actually created the world. All right. So that's chapter one, two. Now they cover a lot of the same ground and not necessarily the same order, but the main point of both of them ultimately is creation. And there's some other interesting points, and we're not going to go into a lot of a lot of this. A lot of questions come out of these chapters. What are the relation? What is the relationship between chapter one and two? Right? It's a good question, and I don't have a solid answer. Uh, what exactly does it mean by the days in chapter one? Are these 24-hour days? Is it just talking about time periods? Um, are we to see this more as a general story, making a theological point, or are we to see this as a scientific account? Good questions. How exactly all this is to be taken, I am not going to share an opinion. Other questions like the water question of the firmament. There's, it talks about the waters being divided and water being above the firmament. It's, it's interesting. What else is in the firmament? Well, there's the sun and the moon. Uh, Not starting when there's light, but starting later on in that narrative. What we should see, though, because this definitely pertains to us and how we're supposed to function, is that we are created in the image of God. Let's uh, go to Genesis chapter 1 and read, starting in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You might remember... um, Probably at this point, probably a year ago, we spent a lot of time talking about um, the angelic host, 
You might recall this, right? We discussed that when you get to Genesis chapter 1, uh, this is the beginning of the creation of the world, but this is not the beginning of God's creative acts. God created angelic beings before he created the earth. That's very clear, not here, but it is very clear in Job, for example, because Job talks about how there were angelic beings there at the creation, watching what God was doing and rejoicing in that. So that's very clear if you go to the end of Job. I think it's Job 38 is where you'll see that. And so we talked about there is an angelic host there. All right. And so God created a bunch of beings, spiritual beings. All right. Before he created and formed the earth. All right. Before he did all of this. When we think about. Uh, verse 26 here, all right? Let us make man in our image after our likeness, all right? And then in verse 27, God created man. There's a whole lot of discussion, all right, obviously on what this means. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Is it your mind? Is it your ability to have language? What is it? Is it the fact that you have a soul and birds don't have a soul, all right? Um, I've also seen someone argue, which is an interesting idea, and I've only seen one person argue it, that it's not a thing in us, but it is a function. We are not made in the image of God. We are made to image God. So think of it as a verb, not as an action. Excuse me, as a verb and an action, not as a noun, right? Not as a thing. It's not something that can be erased or damaged, but it is rather something that we must do because God made us to do that thing. Now, is that what's in mind in Genesis? I don't know, actually. The New Testament or the Old Testament are not really clear on exactly what the image of God is. Um, are we supposed to image God in the world? That is certainly true. And so maybe that's not what he means here, but it is certainly something that we are supposed to do. Um, just as Jesus was the exact image of God in the world, right? You want to see God, look at Jesus. So we also are supposed to be images of Christ and therefore images of God. So all of that is true, though there's lots to debate on what exactly it means for us to be in the image of God. But in terms of creation, in terms of earthly creation, we are unique. All right, We are unique. The fact that animals exist is, an ex- is a, you know, a proof that God exists. And so in that sense, their existence images or shows that God does exist. But we are unique in that... We are, not, we, we are not of the same class as animals. We are uniquely supposed to be the image of God within the world. Now, the reason why I mentioned the whole angelic host thing is when you get to verse 26, where it says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then you have in verse 27, where God singular creates. Uh, You've got some options here. Um, Some people go with the, you might have heard of this, like Elohim is a plural of majesty about let us. And so that's why you've got that there. Uh, That could be the reason why it's a let us. Some people say, well, this is the Trinity. This is inter-Trinitarian talk. Uh, I don't. I don't think so, personally. Um, my what I think is most likely now, or true now, and this is of course I'm always growing as we're always all learning. Uh, I think actually God is talking to His angelic host. I think God created. All right, He created the angelic host because He wanted the heavens ruled. He wanted the heavens filled. All right, and so He created, and then He wanted the earth, and He wanted the earth filled. 
and he wanted things created in the earth. And so when it says, let us make him make man in our image, tentative, but I tend to think what this is referring to is God created angelic hosts to image him, and he's talking to them and saying, let us make man in our image. But when it comes down to the actual making, it's only God doing the making. All right? Angels can't make. Angels can't create. All right? They are ultimately significantly weaker than God. It's, it's very much like whenever you see, for example, when, um, when, in, when you see this council show up, when God says, Who's going, how, what are we going to do about this bad king? What are we going to do? How are we going to bring him down? And one of the angelic members says, hey, I will go lie to him, all right, and cause his downfall. It's these kind of interactions, which I think is in play. But I'll leave that up to you. So we've got man created in the image of God. We are either spiritually in some way or physically some way imaging God, or it is, or it is a role. And that's chapter 1. Chapter 2, you've got similar things. Now, one other thing from these two chapters before we talk about the fall is this notion. And that is, what was the state of the world at this point? All right? I want you to notice something in terms of sequence. And first I'm going to ask you a question. Was the world before the fall perfect? And what do we mean by perfect? It is certainly good. It is certainly good. When you say perfect, what does perfect mean? There was no death. And that is very, very good. All right? Okay. There does seem to be abundance. Now, the question for my mind is, where is there abundance? Is the entire world Edenic? The entire world is not Edenic. All right? Um, here, the Eden is a garden, or if you, like the Net Bible translates it as orchard, right? Uh, here, it doesn't, it doesn't talk about like tomato plants. It talks about trees with fruit, all right? So maybe it's an interesting translation choice. Um, Eden is an orchard or a garden of some sort, all right? You also find in Ezekiel and other places that Eden is on a mountain, all right? Now, Eden is very clearly, from the Genesis account, not the entire world. Because it goes and makes a point of saying, Eden is right here, right? Near these rivers, right? And so Eden is clearly not the whole world. And I only want to make this point, because if you look there at the end of chapter 1, at what we just read, even though the world was good, and even though the world was was without sin, even though the world was not cursed, the world still needed work. And whose job was it to do that? It was mankind's job to do that. It was Adam and Eve's, starting with them, in verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so God created the world, and it was good. But God created man to then subdue the world. So God, in a sense, created the world in a state of perfection, if we're talking about lack of sin. Very true. But it was meant to be subdued entirely by man, under God's direction. 
Man was supposed to be a worker. We were never meant to be idle. All right. Man was supposed to subdue the earth. Yes, Bill? Just, um, it, it's kind of weird to say, well, was it perfect or was it good? And my thinking on it, mm-hmm. it was exactly how it was supposed to be. Yeah. Okay. Some things were left to be done, and that was done on purpose so that man would do it. Was it, it wasn't needing to be better. Well, in the in a sense that God didn't do it well enough. So That's he right. Had to get better later. No, he set it up that way. That's right. That's right. It's it's not wrong. God didn't fail. God specifically created it in such a way that it was, and it was good, and He made man to then have dominion as His imagers in the world. Right. Now, if we move on to chapters to chapter three, we see that this becomes a lot more difficult, right? Because Adam and Eve sin, and there's curses towards the end of that. And so, if you look, for example, in verse seventeen of chapter three, and to Adam he said, "Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorn and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. I like to think of it as just the distinction between, really, what in both cases man is supposed to subdue the earth and be fruitful and multiply. One would have been joyful. The other one is tiresome. All right? Because of mankind's sin, uh, the ground will no longer be obedient to him as readily as before. Okay? So I think that's, that's the major idea there. The dominion mandate didn't change, and it gets repeated. Right? We will see it again whenever we look at Noah, for example. And the reason why the Tower of Babel happened was, was because mankind was shirking its duty to fill the earth and, and multiply and subdue it. And so you've got this repeated as a, as a major theme uh, throughout these first few chapters. So in chapter 3, you've got the initial fall. We don't know much about sin at this point, right? Um, it has some, it's clearly related to a commandment. God gave them one commandment, don't eat of this tree. They ate of that tree, all right? And what are the consequences of that sin? Well, the earth is now not going to yield so easily. Uh, of course, we read the curse related to the man, to the woman. God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bear, bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So there's some issues there. Mankind, there, there is here a tension between the man and the woman uh, as a part of this curse. Chapter 4, Cain and Abel, you get a whole nother level of sin in some ways. Because what you get is you get ultimately a man so out of control, all right, that he does the, the first murder, right? And it's not that he murders a stranger. He murders his own brother, right? And so Cain and Abel, they both bring an offering to the Lord. Cain brings 
what? Produce of the earth. Abel brings livestock, right? And God looks on favor on Abel's offering. It's debatable on why exactly, but he certainly did, and that's the point of the story. He looked on favor in Abel's offering, not on Cain's, and out of jealousy and hatred, then Cain kills his brother. All right? So we see as a result of the fall, all right, we see as a result of the fall, messed up passions. All right? If you would, uh, let's turn very far forward in the future to Galatians chapter 5. uh, You can keep your finger back in Genesis. We will go back there. And the fact that we are a ball of messed up passions is really clear, right? It's really obvious to us. It was really obvious to people, not even necessarily within Christianity. I mean, it's really obvious that we are messed up, all right? We are very messed up in terms of what we desire, all right? Uh, We see this in Galatians chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so Paul here just gives a litany of messed up passions. And we can go all the way back Maybe you can go back to Genesis 3. It's very clear when you go back to at least Genesis 4, where you see man's messed up passions starting to come out, causing anger, causing murder, causing issues, right? Now, this is something that Christ absolutely wants to fix in us, right? As it says, reading on, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So we, as humanity, are a big ball of messed up passions. And these passions lead to all sorts of things. All right? Sexual sin, greed, murder, whatever. Mankind is messed up from an internal feeling standpoint. And the point, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit that the Spirit wants to build in us is fixing a lot of those things, right? Love and joy and peace. Some of these don't look like passions. Like, for example, self-control is not a passion, But it is actually the control of the passions, right? That's the idea of, is love good? Yes. But it must be controlled righteously, right? Is the desire to work good? Yes. God made us to work. That was clearly pre-fall that God made us to work. But 
the passions, when they're messed up, right, can take the righteous desire for work and turn it into the unrighteous desire for too much money. An unrighteous greed. Right? The passions, all right, the passions are screwed up, and we see that definitely, very strongly in Abel. And then, of course, you see that you know, ever since. And we see that now, right? And we see that in our current world. If we think about, you know, what's, what's the big debates these days? One of them is about human sexuality, right? There are a lot of confused passions, right? Lots of confused passions. And in some ways, it seems like the passion of some is to confuse the passions of people, all right? Confused passions, God doesn't want confused passions in his people. God wants self-control, which is why he gave us and gives us his spirit. All right? If we want a solution to the passionate, messed up-ness of the world, it's not going to be found in the world. It's going to be found in the spirit. All right? Because the spirit can take what is just rough passion and turn it into true love. Right? That's the, that is the job of the Spirit in us, to turn murder, idolatry, sorcery, enmity into love, joy, peace, patience, self-control, and such. The fruits of the Spirit. And so we see this going all the way back to the beginning. Back to Cain and Abel. And so Cain then murders his brother, as we know. Another big question for you to think about, one that's, all, that's, that's brought up very commonly, and I don't know the answer to this one, would be uh, whenever Cain is, is cursed by, by God, he, where, where does Cain go? He goes to the east, and who does he go live with? Other people. Where do those other people come from? It doesn't say, all right? And I don't have an answer for you. It's an interesting question there in chapter 4. Go for it. With him, uh, it kind of reminds me. It does remind me of me. I think a lot of younger, out of control people, where they they're uh, like he's ruled by his emotions, mm-hmm. and you know he kills his brother, and then when he you know God confronts him about it, he's like, I can't take the punishment. Ah! And it's like that's such a it's like a weakness. That it shows like. The inadequacy to fulfill, like I think it shows in Genesis, at least even because the law hasn't been, you know, laid out yet. But I think in that way, it does show that the law wasn't, and it wasn't even though it wasn't revealed yet, it couldn't have, it wasn't able to be fulfilled by the first men. Like, mm-hmm. and it's uh, and it's a reoccurring thing throughout the whole Old Testament. It seems so. Yeah, it is man's corruption. Um, man's corruption ultimately does not lead him to success in when there is no law following just their conscience, right? It leads them to disordered passions and ultimately here in this particular case, murder. Yeah, even before there is a law. And when there is a law, it's still a problem there. And as Paul discusses, in some ways, law exacerbates sin because sin sees law and goes, 
ooh, now that you say I can't do that, I want to do that even more. Um, such is the nature of our messed up passions. Yes, Chip. When uh, the serpent told Adam and Eve they would be as gods, mm-hmm. they would determine for themselves what is good and evil. Mm-hmm. That's the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Mm-hmm. That is a possible explanation. Abel, Abel's yeah. offering was a <coughs> spotless lamb, was it, or one of his livestock? Mm-hmm. So, uh, if digging into that, you know, be like God's thing for a second. Um, so, what was the serpent in this particular case? Was it actually like a you know grass snake or something like that? Right. It's uh, yeah. If you go back to Revelation and you go back and pointing out, okay, well, this is this is the being of Satan, right? It's not necessarily clear. Well, his name is not mentioned, right, in chapter three. It's not said this is Satan talking to Eve, uh, but you do see from later biblical revelation that this is certainly this is Satan. This is the dragon. This is the great serpent. All right. And so, what is what is Satan? What type of being is he? He's an angelic. He's a fallen angelic being, right? Uh, remember when we just a few minutes ago we talked about how God created the angelic host. How many of them? I don't know. Thousands upon thousands, potentially, of the angelic host. God created those beings. Do these do these beings have the ability to sin? Do they have the ability to fall? Clearly, they do. Satan does as well. And so, um, what what? I guess the best way to say this is this. They have, in other words, the ability to know good or evil. And some of those beings chose evil. And some of them did not. Some of those beings chose good. And they remain righteous to this day. But some of them chose evil. Satan being one of those beings. Now, what's interesting, if you think about the angelic host, and you re- you, if you recognize that, okay, the serpent here is the satanic figure talking to them, all right? Essentially, you could read this, and this is how I read it, is Satan is basically tempting them to be like him. You can be, when he says, you can be like the gods, he's talking about not necessarily the one god, the highest god, all right, the god that created all things. Uh, but you can be like the spiritual beings. You can be like us. God created those creatures in the heavens to image Him and to do His will. God created man on earth to image Him, to be His imagers, uh, and to do His will. And so uh, it's essentially, you can read it, I, re- I read it as one imaging being talking to another, saying, wouldn't you like to be like us, Eve? And Eve ultimately gives into the temptation. 
And so that's the, that's the issue of ultimately the word God in Hebrew. Um, God in Hebrew is a plural. Often, most often, when you see God, the, which in Hebrew is Elohim, when you, that term is usually translated God, and most of the time it is referring to the one God. Uh, but there are times where it does talk, to, talk about beings other than God. It's really a generic term for spiritual being in many ways. Like, for example, uh, when, when Samuel is being brought up as a shade from Sheol uh, in the story with, with Saul and, the, and the, the diviner woman, Samuel is described as an Elohim. He's described as a spiritual being. And he, at that point he is, actually, because he he's dead, right? And has and had been dead for a bit by that point. Yeah. Wouldn't the, you know, the, the people who wrote these words on you know, papyrus or what have you, don't you think they'd be aware of the gods of the others? And then that, in part, it's you know, by pointing out that this our Elohim God, the one true God, is distinct and different, superior to all these others, is a mm-hmm. way to speak to... Yes. I guess it's more the New Testament too. But it's, yeah, yes. To speak to them and to kind of give them a jab at you know, it's like you're worshiping lesser things, basically. Yes. Yeah. The monotheism of the Old Testament is not a monotheism of God exists and He's the only spiritual being. That that that's not. I mean, that's that's not what they believe. They believe that there's lots of spiritual beings, but there's only one true God. There is only one God that created all those other spiritual beings, including the heavens and the earth and everything in it. All right? And so the monotheism of the Old Testament and the New Testament, because Paul and others and Peter, and they talk about this as well, there are other spiritual beings, and God is conquering them, essentially. All, right? all of those that fail, God is ultimately going to defeat them. And then ultimately, when you get to the New Testament, you've got this little nugget in there where there's this notion that, um, remember, you might remember the statement in the Old Testament, uh, excuse me, in the New Testament, where if, essentially, if you would have known who Jesus was, they would not have crucified him because they crucified the Lord of glory. They, the fact is, they did not realize what God, the true God, was actually doing in Jesus. And they essentially played into his plan, and his plan is ultimately what? Well, that Jesus is exalted. And what gets put under Jesus' feet? All his enemies. Man, who are his enemies? Man, who are his people? And principalities, powers, forces of darkness. That includes Satan. That includes all the fallen angels. And so... Just keep in mind, the monotheism of... We think monotheism, and we say, one God, and we stop at that. All right, And that's true. There is only one true God that created all things. But their emphasis is broader than that. It's not just a God. It is a God that is conquering lots of little g-gods as they go along. And remember, as we mentioned before, the early church kept this notion. All right? Remember Augustine, big part of the city of God, his book was to argue not that the gods of the Romans don't exist. He believed that they existed. He just believed they were all demons and that God was destroying them. All right? This is Athanasius in his On the Incarnation. This is him basically saying, hey, look how people, are stopping, people aren't going to your temples and idols anymore. 
Why not? Because we're winning. That was Athanasius' argument. And so God is conquering, all right, as a part of this. And God is ultimately, what you find in the New Testament, is God is specifically conquering through Jesus. And when we get to Abraham, and uh, one, of the, one of the bits of the Old Testament theology, and we should stop soon, one of the bits of the Old Testament theology is you, what does God say about Abraham and about Israel? This is my portion, is what he says, right? This is my people. Are the Canaanites God's people? Right? Not in the same sense, though. Sort of, right? God owns everything. God created everything. But Abraham and his children are specifically his portion and his inheritance. All right? But as a part of that promise, and this gets us into you know, Genesis 12, so totally jumping ahead, like seven chapters. Um, what's the promise to Abraham? I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to multiply you, and through you, all the nations will be blessed. And so, ultimately, in Abraham, the reconquest of the world begins. All right, The reconquest of not only the physical world, but the spiritual world begins as well. Because even though Abraham and his descendants are the portion that he has chosen and says, here's my people, and I'm going to fix it. All right, I'm going to fix stuff through them. It's ultimately, these are my people, and I will fix everything, ultimately, through them. But that's jumping ahead a few chapters. Eric, yes, sir. In Jude 6, um, there's an interesting phrase where Jude describes the fallen angels, and he says they, will, they left their first estate. Mm-hmm. And I think like man's first estate was to, I've got a job for you, keep the garden. Yes. Whatever it was they were supposed to be doing, they decided they were gonna they knew better and they were gonna do something different. So they left and yeah, they left they also left their first estate, right? Because they sinned and they were kicked out of the garden. But yeah, the angels, they're the same way. They had a job. And many of them chose to do what was right. But some of them chose otherwise. And you see that in various cases because you do see malevolent spirits throughout the Old Testament. And of course, even probably more prominently in the New. But you definitely see them in both. So, uh, Lord willing, next Lord's Day we'll continue in Genesis. Um, I, you should totally read, by the way, Jude, which Edward just mentioned, and Second Peter. Because they will both very much help us in our interpretation of, um, of essentially Genesis chapter 6. All right? uh, Genesis, Genesis chapter 6, the beginning of it in terms of the Nephilim and all that kind of stuff, um, it's, a little, it's a little unclear in the Old Testament text. You can read and then go, this could be one or two or three. What, what is this here? Um, Second Peter and Jude make it very clear what's going on there in terms of it's an angelic rebellion. So uh, we'll, we'll, Lord willing, get to that uh, next Lord's Day. And so, read Second Peter, read Jude, focus on this uh, first section of Genesis. And um, if you have any questions about anything we discussed, uh, feel free to talk to me during lunch. Uh, I know some of you weren't around when we went through a whole lot of Old Testament talking about the angelic council and various passages that talk about uh, a lot of the goings-on there. So, if you want to talk about any of that, let me know and we can always do a refresher as well. 
on that. Okay. Or see this. 17 till. Uh, a couple more minutes. Any more questions or thoughts before we dismiss? Yes, Jonathan. Yeah, what do you think of spiritual beings still being around and active nowadays? And witchcraft being active? And I forgot what you call. Was Samuel being kind of spiritually risen from the dead? What do you think of all that still being around? Is that active? Can people still call upon spirits and appear? Biblically, is that supported? Um, yes, is ultimately the answer. Now, mankind is um, very able to sin without angelic interference, right? Um, we are we we have disordered passions, all right. Uh, however, however. I do believe there is a spiritual world, and it is still active. And some of it, not all of it, some of it is anti-God. And so, yes, uh, I do believe that still exists. Um, and keeping consistency with the with the early church, I believe all of that is there. But I also believe there's a conquest happening. And so, um, I, I don't believe Christ has been inactive for the last 2,000 years. And so there's a lot of that. I, we, we are not told exactly how that's going to work out. Uh, but I have to believe that that part of the world is being conquered. And as a matter of fact, um, that's part of the church's job, to tear down strongholds. And when it's talking about that kind of world, that's spiritual warfare. And that's not just against bad people. It's against people who are negatively affected by the evil part of the spiritual realm. So I do believe all of that is there. Um, and are those beings powerful? You, you, you see them. You, they have power. In the Old Testament, for example, you'll see this in various stories. When you see Noah in the Exodus fighting uh, magicians in Egypt, the magicians in Egypt seem to have powers. All right? We might want to explain that as, oh, they're just doing tricks. Maybe, but there's actually no reason to think that. From a biblical standpoint, de- demons have powers. And so the fact that demonic powers could be doing things should be no surprise. But then you see in the Exodus story um, that God's servant, Moses, does things that they, those magicians can't do. And so we see God being more powerful for that for, throughout this whole story. But that doesn't mean that they aren't there and active and don't have power. So, after Jesus came and he died, and then he rose and went back to heaven, his apostles had powers to cast demons at the people. Yeah. Do Christians biblically still have that power? Because I've heard like some people say they do, but since there's a spiritual warfare, it might make sense that they would, so they can, under the power of God, obviously. I'll give you a maybe on that. I don't know. Um, it would make sense. It would make sense. But I don't know. Yeah. Wouldn't it be a form of punishment to you know, these demons, that the fallen angels? They had the tree of life and the tree of knowledge. So they have seemingly eternal life from our perspective. And yeah. knows the difference good and evil. Jesus came, they didn't know 
that crucified him, the people crucified him. And now, to be aware of the conquest that's happening that you know is going to overtake you at some point in time, <coughs> is that like a sort of Damocles, not a form of punishment, let's say? Of knowing you will ultimately knowing, lose? No matter what you Certainly. Think, yeah, you're, you're, no matter how powerful you think you are, how powerful others believe you are, it's ultimately futile in the eyes of the Creator kind of thing. I think so. Yeah. The New Testament is clear that Satan knows he's going to lose. Right. Um, did he know that before Jesus came? Actually, I don't, I don't know. It doesn't say. I, I, I tend to agree that that wasn't necessarily something he knew. Uh, but it is really clear after Jesus' resurrection, New Testament-wise, Satan now knows he's going to lose. That's that's spelled out explicitly. For the time, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and, and as you as you talk about, well, as we talk about Second Peter, Jude, and uh, these next couple chapters in Genesis, we've got an angelic judgment coming that's in the past, um, where some in, some are imprisoned. So. Okay, so let's be dismissed. We can talk about this. Anybody want to talk about it over lunch? Would absolutely love to. We can go through scriptures, talk about things. Let me know. Okay?